He's a top bloke. Top bloke. Top bloke. Do you know what? That's the highest honour an Australian can be bestowed by the Australian government. The medal of the top bloke. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the medal of honour. It's not the Victoria Cross. It's the top bloke. And what what do you get? What does the medal look like? Nothing. <laughs> you just get a pet on the back. <laughs> you just get a punch on the shoulder. The Queen just comes up and just belts you. No. You're all right, you... <laughs> The Queen has to put on an Australian accent when she goes over there. I hereby declare that you are a wonderful <laughs> bloke. <laughs> Philip, crack open the beers. We've got a top bloke. <laughs> it's time for That Was Genius, Tom. G'day, Sam. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. You live in New Zealand. Why are you using Australianisms, Tom? Because, Sam, I'm glad you asked. Because I'm talking about an Australian chap today. That was beautifully worked. Wow, that was serendipitous. (laughs) (laughs) We're just on the same page, aren't we? Shit me, it's almost like we're prepared this, isn't it? That was wonderfully on the same page. Yes, so that is why I decided to slip in a little bit of Australian there, Sam. I'm talking about an Australian chap. Well, we could all do with slipping in a little Australian every so often. For those who are new to this podcast, welcome to That Was Genius. I'm not sure what that means. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still trying to work. I know it's a a euphemism, but I can't quite work out the specifics of it. (laughs) But just roll with it. I'll be honest with you. I didn't really think it through before I said it. It can be whatever you want it to be, Tom. Fair enough. Let the imagination run. (laughs) Welcome to That Was Genius, a podcast in which I, Sam, and you, Tom, on different sides of the world, surprise each other each week with a historical story. There is a theme each week. This week, I believe the theme is historical Richards or historical dicks. Prominent dicks. (laughs) Prominent dicks. The other does not know what we're going to be talking about. So other than the theme, it's a complete surprise. There is, as you have probably guessed by now, some immature humour. There's probably some dodgy accents. (laughs) Almost certainly going to be some dodgy accents. There is hilarity all round. The theme this week is prominent dicks and historical Richards. How did you find this one, Tom? Excellent. It was brilliant, Sam. Can I I run through some honourable mentions here? Yes, please do. I've got an honourable mention as well, but you go first. Oh, go on. I don't, want to, I don't want to take yours. I've got a list. If you've got one, go on. You go first. I have two honourable mentions. The first is a shout-out to American footballer Dick Butkus. Um... <laughs> That's not funny, Sam. And you know full well <laughs> it's, it's... that Dick Butkus would kick your ass if you were ever in he his would. presence and you took the piss out of his name. <laughs> he would, yeah. Dick Butkus, the 70-something-year-old American footballer. Uh, also honourable... <laughs> Maybe he wouldn't. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Also, honourable mention goes to the SS Richard Montgomery, which is a ship, Tom. The Richard Montgomery is a World War II supply ship that ran aground in the Thames and on the way into London in August 1944. It was loaded with explosives, and while some were removed, it was considered too dangerous to get them all, so there's still 1,400 tonnes yes. on board. Yes, I, I didn't realise what the name of that ship was, Yeah, but I definitely have heard about this. Indeed. Uh, so there's still an entire section of the Thames on the entry to the Port of London, which is out of limits to shipping because there's 1,400 tonnes of bombs there. And yeah. you can still see the SS Richard Montgomery's masts poking above the water at low tide. And if, if, if that goes off, that is a really significant explosion, isn't it? it <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a big boom. Yeah, it's, it is. I, I've seen that. I've seen documentaries about that. I went down the route, Sam, of people with lots of Richards in their name. So here are some, some <laughs> honourable mentions. Richie Richardson, he was a West Indian cricketer and later an umpire. We have Dick Richards, the American astronaut. 
there's a Dick Dickinson, an American actor. And also, Sam, this is one that I'll be surprised if you didn't know about. Richard Richard from the cult British comedy Bottom. (laughs) Now, you and I love Bottom, don't we? (laughs) It is quite immature when you watch reruns, Sam. (laughs) This was the stuff of our childhood, though, wasn't it? Yeah, I think when you're 12 and 13, it's gold. As you get a little bit older, you start to think it's probably a little bit erring on the side of juvenile. (laughs) (laughs) For those who haven't heard of Bottom, it's an appalling but kind of genius British sitcom from, I think, the 80s, 90s, isn't it? From an era where all British sitcoms were kind of deliberately depressing. It's quite a depressing sitcom in a very British way with two absolute man-children who basically just spend their time twatting each other with frying pans and making jokes (laughs) about poo. (laughs) (laughs) And they speak like Richie and Richie and Eddie. Eddie and Richie. And uh, two Eddie and Richie. <laughs> and they, um, oh, what's the other sitcom that Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson did? The Young Ones. The Young Ones. That's probably more famous, isn't it? The Young Ones. It is, which again was a very kind of 80s people living in horrible, depressing circumstances. Hilarity ensues. I wouldn't track them down. They haven't stood the test of time well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't either, no. But an important part of our childhood. They're not classics. Anyway, so those were my honourable mentions. Are we, are we at the stage where we need to flip something to decide who goes first? Yes, let's flip. I have in front of me, Tom, a receipt for some petrol and a bag of hula hoops. Nice. Is that a receipt for the petrol and the hula hoops, or are we choosing between a bag of hula hoops and a receipt? No, it's a receipt for both. It's a receipt for £25.95 pence worth of fuel and beefy hula hoops. Oh, interesting choice. Do you line the hula hoops up on your dashboard and as you're driving along, just slowly work your way through them? Yes, I essentially have turned left whenever possible in order to roll hula hoops from the passenger side into my gaping moor. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Now, in Britain, you drive on the left, which means that our infamous roundabouts, you go round the right-hand way. So I essentially narrowly avoid several major collisions by going the wrong way around a roundabout every time I stop for petrol. All in the aid of getting some hula hoops in your mouth without... Indeed, without taking my hands off the steering wheel. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only way I can possibly eat on the move, (laughs) is to swing violently to the left every few hundred (laughs) metres. Right, there we go. Uh, so what? So one side's blank, now one side has the information on. No, so one side's not blank, Tom. I wouldn't do that to you. One side has the information on, the other side has a voucher for a 99p Burger King meal. Ooh, it's a very healthy... Th- <laughs> yeah, I know, right? You're giving us a wonderful insight into how healthy your lifestyle is. <laughs> I will go for the hula hoops and the petrol. Okay, the receipt is being flipped. The receipt has landed... It's the Burger King, which I believe means I win, and I believe means you're going first. Well, that's good, because I was going to put myself in first anyway. I don't think I've won a... I haven't won a flip for quite a while, I don't think. Well, the reason for that, Tom, is because you have to trust me. You're fixing it, exactly. (laughs) I have no way of knowing. Uh, Right. There are literally no evidence whatsoever being presented (laughs) that you are, in fact, losing these. Apart from the sound effects. Yes, well, I am flipping something. But what side is it landing on? It's a mystery, Tom. It's part of the rich audio tapestry we weave for our listeners. Maybe we should video it and and put it on our Instagram feed. Maybe I should. That'd be boring, wouldn't it? I was about to say, that would be terrible. <laughs> that would be captivating Instagram content. That would indeed. 
Right, anyway, I'm going to talk about Dick Richards. What a great Aussie name. That is a great Aussie name. I'm killing two birds with one stone with this one, Sam, because not only is Dick Richards' name Richard Richards, his dad was Richard Richards, so I'm getting a lot of Richards in here straight away. Wow, so if he'd been Norwegian, he would have been Richard Richard Richardson. Doesn't <laughs> <laughs> it's an Icelanders? I think it's Icelanders who do that. <laughs> Richard Richard Richardson. Richard Richards was an Antarctic explorer, so I'm also getting that in because we've threatened to talk about Antarctic explorers for the last couple of podcasts. We have an empty threat until now. Until now, I will fulfil that threat. So I'm delighted with myself here. When the moment I found out about Dick Richard, I thought Dick Richards is my guy. So, Dick Richards, great Aussie name. He's the kind of bloke I think you can rely on in a scrape, Dick Richards, you know? Strong name, strong person. He'll wrestle an alligator. He certainly will, won't he? That's the name of a guy who will... Punch a kangaroo. Who punch a kangaroo. He'll look a funnel-web spider straight in the eyes and go, right, this is a problem and I'm dealing with it. <laughs> I'm going to have you, I will. <laughs> So Dick Richards, Dick Richards is a type of guy you could have 4X at the MCG whilst watching some ARL with. That's that's Dick Richards. And being slightly racist. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like you weren't being Australian enough there. Certainly on the right side of the, of the spectrum when it comes to um, <laughs> acceptance of other ethnicities. I accidentally said ARL and I just want to clarify that it's AFL to any Australian listeners who might get upset. That's Aussie Rules football, by the way, AFL, which is... If you ever watched Aussie Rules football, it's shit. It's essentially all of the games that got banned in your oh, schoolyard, yeah, isn't it? Good, that's a good way of describing it. So, Dick Richards, born 1894. How many times are you going to say Dick Richards? Oh, but I just love the name, Dick Richards. <laughs> I just It sounds like an Australian superhero name, Dick Richards. I was, do you know what I was just about to say? Dick Richards sounds very much like he should be... In an Australian, like, Marvel comic or something. <laughs> so Dick Richards would be like Clark Kent, wouldn't it? So what would be, what would be the superhero? Koala Man. <laughs> <laughs> I think he drank some radioactive beer. He drank a radioactive stubby. And now he fires shrimp. <laughs> hot, flaming, barbecued shrimp from his ass. <laughs> Dick Richards, my name. Firing shrimp from my ass is my game. <laughs> G'day, mate. You look like a beautiful Sheila. Watch this. <laughs> what is wrong with you, Sam? What is wrong with you? I'm going to edit this bit out. I'm in a funny mood. I've had two coffees very, this morning already. I'm on my third. Very strange superhero you've just conjured up. So, Dick Richardson, born 1894, lived to 1986. What a ripe old age in 91, I think. He died. No, 92 wow. he would have been, I think. And because he was quite young at the time of his his Antarctic explorations, he was actually on Ernest Shackleton's Imperial Transatlantic Expedition at the age of 20. And because he died so late, he was the last explorer from that golden era of Antarctic exploration. And I say golden, meaning lots of people died through through lack of preparation. <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah, and, and sort of just total ignorance of how hard it was going to be and a sort of a belief that they'd just get through anything with a stiff upper lip. And a woolly jumper. Yeah, yeah and a woolly, absolutely. It's just... You wait until I tell you the story of this uh, trans-Antarctic expedition. So he joined this Antarctic exploration at the age of 20. He was actually a science teacher, so he joined because of his knowledge of science. And after the expedition, he went on to, to continue lecturing 
at university in Australia. So, the Imperial Trans-Arctic Expedition. Have you heard of this one, Sam? I haven't heard of this one. I don't... Th- well, I, or have I? I don't know. I never know the names of them. Yeah, exactly. I think you will have heard of it. You, you might not know the details. You might not know the names. So, it was, it was an attempt by Ernest Shackleton to cross the Antarctic continent. And it took place... Um, so, when was Scott and, and Amaldson? That was 1911, I think. Four years, three years, it's 1914. So it took place three years after that. And Hamilton has reached the South Pole. So that objective has disappeared. You can no longer be the first person to do that. So Ernest Shackleton was keen to be the first person to actually get across the continent. And so his objective was to go from the South America side of the Antarctic to the Australian-New Zealand side. So it's actually quite difficult to describe because I can't really use North or South because it's the South. It's kind of East to West, isn't it? Yeah, or west to east, sorry, yeah, west to east. Yeah, I think so. We'll go with that. I think that's roughly right. And there were two parties here. The, the, the party that Ernest Shackleton was part of was called the Weddell Sea Party. And this consisted of 28 men, six of whom would attempt a close to 3,000 kilometre journey across what was the narrowest part of the continent, which was from the Weddell Sea to the Ross Sea. So that was the narrowest sort of way of getting across. It was a massive cock-up. So the Weddell Sea Party was just a massive cock-up. Their ship, Endurance, got stuck in ice, stranding the entire party, whilst the party were just hoping and praying that the, the ship would get released naturally from the ice. It just got crushed. So the whole ship just got crushed. <laughs> they managed to get the lifeboats off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oops, indeed. Uh, Whoopsie-daisy. <laughs> yeah, not the nicest place to be stranded, I don't think. No. It's, it's pretty much like getting stranded on the moon, isn't it? At that time, it's pretty bloody remote. They get the lifeboats off and they they manage to get themselves to a place called Elephant Island, which is uninhabited. So many of the islands around Australia, New Zealand, south side of those countries, and also the islands to the south of South America and South Africa did have whaling stations and things, but they were stuck on Elephant Island, nothing there. Nobody had ever been there as far as I'm aware. And Ernest Shackleton and a few of the more senior members of the group, I suppose, They then managed to travel on an open boat, so one of the lifeboats, 1,300 kilometres to South Georgia, which did have a whaling station, to find help. And they eventually rescued all of the men. Jesus, because that's a rowing. That's a 1,300-kilometre row, isn't it? I suppose it would have been, unless they managed to make a makeshift sail. I don't know what these lifeboats looked like. Whatever it was, it was a bloody horrible journey. And if you look at pictures of Elephant Island, Elephant Island is very much... (laughs) the south of the world it's it's still very very cold <laughs> it's not like a lovely beach in australia it's a bit shit isn't it's it? it's a bit shit and there must have been some bloody who wants to be in a, on a whaling station in the arse end of nowhere at this time well maybe people trying to avoid the first world war who knows <laughs> and then we have the ross sea party so the ross sea party is the party that our dick richards was part of and this is where we hear about the hero dick richards Now, the Ross Sea Party, their primary role was to help Shackleton and his five other men get across the continent. Shackleton wasn't confident that he could get all the way across carrying his own supplies. So the Ross Sea Party were to get onto the Antarctic. They were to lay supply depots for the final 640 kilometres up to a place called Beardmore Glacier. So that when Shackleton got to that point, he'd have run out of his supplies and he could just start finding these depots, picking up supplies. And before you knew it, he would be um, on the other side of the continent having high fives and hugs from all the Ross Sea dudes. If only it was that simple. On paper, it sounds like a good plan. It sounds simple. Probably one of the major problems is that they just don't seem to have prepared for this. If you were 
Ranulf Fiennes or someone like that, and you were going to attempt some great feat of stamina in the modern age, you'd train for two years, you'd have top quality equipment, you'd do recce's, you'd train in relevant conditions. These guys just turned up with a packet of fags and a bloke <laughs> and a woolly jumper, like you said earlier. It's- if there's one thing that we've learned, it's that Victorian explorers relied entirely on luck and charm. Absolutely. There was absolutely no expertise whatsoever required. The Royal Geographic Society seemingly would send any old prick mad enough to write them a letter off to the arse end of nowhere. This is a big, big topic. There's a lot of information out there, and this could cover lots of different podcasts. But from some of the little bits that I, I researched, some of the people on these parties, the Weddell Sea Party and the Rossi Party, they weren't the creme de la creme. I think one of them was a stowaway who was just so keen. Yeah, genuinely. <laughs> Unlucky. One who was so keen to be on the expedition that he actually locked himself in the bottom of the ship and popped out when they were close to the Antarctic and said, Hello, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dick Richards himself was a science teacher. Yes. A very noble profession. But I highly doubt that any Arctic or Antarctic expedition is going to require the services of a man whose area of expertise is growing snails in bell jars. Yeah, it, it's somewhere <laughs> nice and warm. And dissecting a frog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see why Amundsen probably had a massive advantage over Scott, can't you? Because he was from Norway, where they actually have snow. Because he'd seen cold before, yeah. experienced cold. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's like, oh, this is what minus feels like. Say, so it's quite odd. They just seem to turn up to these places and think that with a bit of persistence and a good old-fashioned stubborn attitude they'd get across. You don't build an empire with expertise, Tom. You build it with the right stuff. Stiff up a lip. Absolutely. So, the Ross Sea Party, they arrive in January 1915. Their ship's called Aurora, which is a lovely name, isn't it? And uh, they immediately set out laying depots from a base at Scott's Cape Evans hut. So, when they're on the Antarctic, there's various huts that seem to have already been established on previous expeditions. So, the Antarctic hadn't been explored hugely, but people like Scott and Amundsen had been there, and there'd been a few other expeditions for scientific reasons by the sounds of it. So, there were one or two huts dotted around that people could go and get shelter in. Two chaps, Aeneas McIntosh and Ernest Joyce, there's tension straight away between these two guys because there's confusion over who is in charge. And Shackleton doesn't seem like a fantastic communicator, to be honest, Sam. I mean, this is in the day and age where you don't just have satellite communications. You can't just get in contact with the other side of the Antarctic continent. Communication must have, it would have had to have been brilliant. You'd have had to have a really good plan A, a plan B and a plan C. They just had a plan A and even that seemed pretty badly put together. So it wasn't clear who Ernest Shackleton had put in charge. It also became clear that after the Weddell Sea Party was a massive failure, the Ross Sea Party just didn't know. And obviously that was just because couldn't get information to them. Yes, that's kind of understandable, really. You can't blame them for that. No, you can't. No, that's just bad luck. I mean, they could have had carrier seals <laughs> tie a message to a seal and send it off to the other side of the Antarctic. Yeah, and, and then that seal probably just got clubbed to death and eaten when it got there. It's real, it's real late to get onto. <laughs> Poor seal looking with his big brown eyes, going, look what I've just done for you. I've just transversed the continent with this message. <clears throat> you know. <laughs> so there's immediately tension between Macintosh and Joyce. Uh, Macintosh wants to start quickly, but he overworks the dogs against the advice of Joyce. And within the first season of laying depots 10 dogs have already died they've i think they took some snow tractors with them as well one of those is fucked and so they've had a few problems almost immediately here's the big problem though sam we've just heard what happened with the weddell sea party aurora their ship gets trapped in ice 
and swept away in a violent storm, despite having seven steel hawsers and two anchors attaching it to the ice and to the sea floor. Embarrassingly, slash unluckily, Aurora had been the base of operations. There was a lot of supplies in the ship. So this meant that they lost the majority of their supplies. They lost their base of operation. They now had no spare clothes. I think I read somewhere that all they had was a spare pair of undies. <laughs> which, as we all know, Sam, oh, no. there are four ways of wearing your undies. So that's not the important thing. <laughs> there are. You need more furs. That's what you need. You can get away with undies for ages. Um, I've tested it. <laughs> <laughs> haven't we all? <laughs> yeah, we've all, we've all been at university, haven't we? So 18 men went with the boat. They would just happen to be in it at the time. And that left 10 people on the continent. The boat actually eventually arrives at Port Chalmers, which is a tiny little town uh, close to Dunedin on uh, the South Island of New Zealand over a year later. Jesus. With the 18 men still on board? Absolutely. So they do manage to get back. So I don't think the ship was badly damaged, if at all damaged. They just had to wait for the ice to thaw so that the boat could actually sail. A year, though, stuck on a boat. Absolutely. That's shit. It's not as shit as a year being stuck on the with ice no with no fucking supplies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. At least these guys... It's like every stag do ever, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least these guys on the boat had everyone else's supplies. They were rolling in chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> they were trying on each other's clothes. They were like, hey! <laughs> Look at me! I'm Shackleton! I'm wearing his jumper! <laughs> I've got Dick Richards' cork hat. Oh, it's lovely! <laughs> Good day, mate! <laughs> <laughs> Look at me! I'm an Australian! <laughs> la la la! I'm Dick Richards! Big prick! La la la! <laughs> Oh, let me try and put his trousers on. Oh, I can't. My belly's so big with all the cake I've been eating. I can't even do the trousers up. <laughs> Celebratory champagne, anybody? <laughs> We're saving it for a special occasion, and it's a Tuesday. <laughs> it just got back a year later, hammered and really fat. <laughs> Incredibly From jolly. a year on the party boat. <laughs> Oh dear. With threadbare clothes where they've been having so many pyjama parties and trying everything <laughs> on. Um, so, so these guys eventually get to Port Chalmers in Dunedin. And as we find out, they eventually go back to rescue these guys who have been left on, on the continent, Antarctic continent. So the people who are now left, this is still the first season. So the first sort of summer on, on the Antarctic continent. They find Scott's Hut has limited but very important supplies of food. And they find a canvas tent which they end up cutting apart, sewing together and using as additional clothing. They also find some sleeping bags. I think they find some socks and a few other bits as well. Oh, lovely. And seals are very, very useful, Sam. Seals are very useful, not only for their food, but also for the oil. As we've discovered before yes. in this podcast. When did we discover that? We have discovered it at some point. They used it to plug a boat. That's right, they did, didn't they? Oh, who was that? It was the annoying sailor from episode six. It was six. the guilty dragon, wasn't it? Oh, no. The guilty dragon. Oh. <laughs> Near Indonesia, oh. wasn't it, where they plugged a hole in their boat with a bit of seal. Yeah, they just shoved a seal in there, I remember now. <laughs> may or may not be a historically accurate representation of what happened. <laughs> we would like to point people in the direction of our podcast entitled What to Do with a Cheerful Sailor. It's a very good one. Indeed. It's a very good episode. You'll get all those references then. So seals are very, very useful. Unfortunately, seals aren't full of vitamin C. And so scurvy becomes quite an issue in the second season because they've run out of a lot of the supplies and they're just stuffing seals left, right and centre. It's pretty much all they've got to eat. But they, they, they do get horrendous scurvy. 
there's one thing you can definitely say about the people who are left on the continent. They are incredibly diligent because as far as they know, Shackleton is, is on his way. And so they have to get their depots laid. And they're also reluctant to use any of those supplies because they know Shackleton will need them. So they're seeing how little they can get away with so that Ernest Shackleton, when he's no doubt in a bit of a pickle himself, trying to get across the continent, he can pick up those supplies and use them. That is incredibly kind-hearted of them absolutely to sacrifice themselves for the comfort of Shackleton absolutely and Dick Richardson is first amongst these people in terms of his fitness his resilience his bravery he's a top bloke Dick top bloke top bloke so um, do you know what that's the highest honour an Australian can be bestowed by the Australian government the medal of the top bloke yeah (laughs) it's not the medal of honour it's not the Victoria Cross it's the top bloke. And what what do you get? What does the medal look like? Nothing. <laughs> you just get a pat on the back. <laughs> you just get a punch on the shoulder. You get a punch in the face. <laughs> Have that top bloke punch in the face. The queen just comes up and just belts you. No. <laughs> oh, I now pronounce you decent. Pitch in the nuts. <laughs> You're all right, you. <laughs> The Queen has to put on an Australian accent when she goes over there. I hereby declare that you are a wonderful <laughs> bloke. <laughs> Philip, crack open the beers. <laughs> We've got a top bloke. <laughs> Sam, your, your impression of the Queen sounds like a Monty Python woman. <laughs> it's my impression of the Australian Queen. Oh, I forgot about her. Yeah, it's the same as the British Queen, but she has to put on an accent when she goes over there. <laughs> Queen Sheila the First. <laughs> Queen Sheila the Thirtieth, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, they do get through their prime ministers rather quickly, Sam. They, they certainly do. Where was I in this story before you started doing bad impressions of the Queen? They were diligently laying depots. <laughs> your impression of the Queen was very similar to your impression of Dick Richardson, just with a high-pitched voice. Well, you've never seen the two in the same room, have you, Tom? <laughs> right. Saved. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's get on to the second season. So... They're setting up suitable locations for stores so that they can then get on and lay these depots. So they're still kind of uh, around where the uh, where they first got onto the continent. They, they're using some of these shelters that are quite close to the coast and they're just getting all of the stores into a good position so they can start the big trek inland laying out these depots. Um, there's more disagreement over methods. Over the winter, somehow, I read this and was quite surprised, some of the dogs have become pregnant. Again, talking about preparation, surely they would have only taken... Dick Richards, yeah. what have you been doing? Yeah, yeah I mean, you, that's what I thought. First, it might get a bit lonely. Could they mute dogs back in the day? I, I'm sure they could. It just seems like an, an odd thing to allow to happen, you know. You're kind of surprised that they'd have mixed gender groups of dogs in the first place. Because if... They're, I mean, they're going to be there for a couple of years. If one of the bitches goes on heat, that is going to ruin your expedition for the next two weeks. That sounded very hip-hop, Sam. <laughs> I was debating whether I could say bitch without having to make a joke about it. It turns out I can't. (laughs) Or I can, but you can't. (laughs) I like how I suddenly managed to take the high ground in terms of our maturity here. (laughs) Have you suddenly developed standards? Um, Anyway, so eventually nine men set off to lay these depots. One stays behind just to look out for the return of Aurora. And they go off in three threes. One of the threesomes returns quite quickly because their primus burner fails. Uh, presumably that's a big deal. It's their only source of heat. They're little paraffin burners, but they're the only thing yeah, 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 that you yeah. can use to heat your food and your hands and provide warmth in your tent. 
it's bad times. I guess that far onto the continent, you're not going to find any more seals to club over the head and set a light to. No. <laughs> so Primus Burner fails, so they return. So we're left with six people close to the final depot location. And this is a long journey, Sam. I'll go into a few details in a moment. One man collapses, can no longer walk. They pick him up on the way back, having reached the final depot location. On the return, Macintosh, who we've talked about a moment ago, is one of the co-leaders, was unable to pull and he just starts staggering along beside the sleds. Meanwhile, you know, Dick Richards still going strong. Ten miles before they finally get back, they're halted by a blizzard for five days and they're stuck in a tent. Three men by this point can no longer contribute. They just get left behind when it sort of starts to clear up a wee bit. And Richards, a chap called Joyce and a chap called Hayward, they carry on to the sort of huts and return with supplies because by this point they've run out of supplies as well. In horrendous conditions by all accounts, an incredibly brave thing for the three of them to do. They managed to rescue two of the people who were left behind who were in a bad state. One of them had died. So the five of them finally get back to some of these slightly older huts that were built by prior expeditions. Now I read somewhere that this journey to lay the depots in this second season, they were out for 198 days doing this. Jeez. I read somewhere else that it was around 156. Either way, out in the cold, exposed to all the elements, they've got scurvy, uh, snow blindness as well is, is a massive issue. They, they were frostbitten after the first season, many of them. So just an incredible feat of, of resilience and endurance. One day when they do get back there, I mean, they start eating the seals. So they get back, they've got their source of food, although it's not particularly nutritious on a micronutrient level, I don't think. But they get certainly a lot of fat and, and meat, protein. Two of the sicker members of the group that did survive start to feel a bit better. But they, it's a bit vague here from what I read. They seem to decide that they're going to sort of make the move to the last hut, the hut that's right beside the sea where the boat landed. And they're never actually seen again. They go out in some pretty bad weather and they're never seen again. It sounds a little bit like the sort of famous Captain Scott ending. Mm. You know, I, I don't know whether or not it's one of these moments where the other three who were the fitter and the stronger basically said to them, sorry guys, but you're, you're just holding us up. Who knows what happened? It could have been a, a brave suicide, you know, uh, to save the other three. Who knows what happened? But anyway, we end up with three people and the fourth chap. So the chap who actually stayed behind for the whole time. We didn't actually go and lay the depots. Two years after they land, in January 2017, they're rescued. 2017? 20, uh, that is a long sorry, time. Sorry, 2017. Sorry, 1917. <laughs> uh, 1917, they're saved. Yeah, that was a long time, wasn't it? 102 years. <laughs> you bastards. <laughs> What's happened? Where am I? <laughs> Meanwhile, they've built a castle of seal corpses. <laughs> and then because the sun never sets in the Antarctic in the summer, they've been like, oh, you've only been here four days. Oh, God, imagine that. Imagine the winters with limited resources in a tiny hunt. I mean, you talk about the summer. Yeah, the winters God. are going to be even worse, aren't they? You're stuck in perpetual darkness in even worse temperatures God, and awful, conditions. Wouldn't it? And they clearly did that because they were there for a second season. Yeah. Crazy. Anyway, they're rescued, and Ernest Shackleton is actually on the boat that rescues them. He doesn't captain that ship. The New Zealand, Australian and British government club together to fund a journey to go and collect these people. And the governments decide they don't want Ernest Shackleton captaining it. They, they choose someone else to captain it. But anyway, he's there to greet them. Interestingly, Sam, they left prior to the First World War starting. So they arrive in 1915, but presumably they started their journey to the Southern Hemisphere before the First World War had started. And they're rescued in 1917. And one of the first things they learn is what's been happening. And, you know, you wonder whether or not they count themselves lucky being in Antarctica and not stuck in a trench being told to run towards the enemy at the Battle of Somme. So... I'm going to put it out there that they're probably equally bad. Yeah, not, neither of them are particularly desirable, are they? I choose neither. Passchendaele or Beardmore Glacier? 
They both of them are pretty foul. And they arrive in New Zealand, they're given a hero's welcome. Dick Richards, he eventually gets awarded the Albert Medal, which is now the George Cross. And here's a lovely quote from Dick Richards. To me, no undertaking carried through to conclusion is for nothing. And so I don't think of our struggle as futile. It was something the human spirit accomplished. So although Shackleton never even started his journey, really, Dick Richardson, when interviewed in later life, always thought he did the right thing. And it showed what man could achieve against the odds. So there you are, Sam. That's the story of Dick Richards. A successful exploration of the human soul and of human ingenuity and capacity to survive, if not of the Antarctic. Lovely. That was quite beautiful, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Now, are you going to be discussing anyone Australian? I'm not going to be discussing anyone Australian. No, but I am going to be discussing uh, someone called Richard. Excellent. Well, that, that uh, fits what are the odds? The that does fit in with the theme. Frightfully on topic. Before I let you go, Sam, I'd like to challenge you on some Aussie phrases. Okay. I've lived in New Zealand now since 2011, and there are a lot of Aussies in New Zealand. I've worked with loads of them. They're great fun. And they have some fantastic phrases, and many of them I, I plan to adopt for the rest of my life. Have you heard the phrase hard yakka? No. It's a goodie. I like hard yakka. Hard yakka means just hard work it's an old australian clothing company and yakka comes from the aborigine word for work oh. chuck a yui what do you think that means chuck a yui yeah do a u-turn oh boom you got it that's chuck a yui sweet chuck a yui is do a u-turn as opposed to the new zealand chuck a yui which would be to literally toss a sheep <laughs> yeah i suppose so yeah <laughs> chuck a chuck a yui um that's actually a tournament they have at agricultural shows all year round is the chuck a yui tournament <laughs> <laughs> where lots of brawny rural Kiwi men throw sheep over their shoulder. You've got Buckley's. You've got Buckley's. You've got balls. No, you've got no chance. Uh... You've got Buckley's. You've got Buckley's, mate. And that was possibly named after an old Melbourne department store called Buckley and Nuns. And so no chance. Bit of a rhyming sort of slang there, I guess. Bit of Cockney rhyming yeah, slang. Right, yeah, all right. Going back to their uh, roots. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Or it could have come from William Buckley, who is an Aussie convict who escaped and lived with Aborigines for many years. So it could come from there. But you've got Buckley's. And this, Sam, is one that I heard last week. I don't think it's a particularly widespread Australian phrase, but it was a phrase that I was introduced to by an Australian. And it's what you say if you think someone's farted. You say, who punched Humphrey? (laughs) (laughs) Which I think... That is the most Australian thing I've ever heard. I don't know why it works, but it does. Who punched Humphrey? (laughs) Just fantastic. I, I fully plan to... Adopt that one. Who punched Humphrey? Oh, sorry, mate. You shouldn't have had the prawn booner. You'll be uh, punching Humphrey all night long. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Wonderful. There you go, Sam. Well, thank you for introducing me, Tom, to uh, some of the finer points of Australian culture and quirks of their linguistic tapestry. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Sam. It's a pleasure. So, who have you got, Sam? So, tell us about your Richard. It's your turn. So, today, Tom, to celebrate Richard's week, I have possibly... I'm going to go out there... And I'm going to say this might be the ultimate lad. He is Richard Francis Burton, not to be confused with Richard Burton, the actor. He is a Victorian explorer, and he lived quite a life, this guy. You like your Victorian explorers, don't you? We've done a lot of Victorian explorers. I've got a thing for Victorian explorers, as we have established already in this podcast. They live hilarious lives through a combined lack of preparation (laughs) and sheer willingness to go the extra mile. So this guy, Richard Francis Burton, was born in 1829 in Devon. His family moved around Europe a lot, 
which meant that he very quickly became very skilled in languages. He learned Italian, he learned French, he learned Latin, and he actually learned Romany Gypsy as well from an affair he had with a travelling woman at some point in his teenage years. He was quite the womanizer and very, very interested in sex, as we will discover later. <laughs> okay. That's very unVictorian, though, isn't it? Yes. And that, again, will, will crop up in his later life. His interest in sex was only matched by his disinterest in what anyone else thought about him. And there's a great quote from him which says, Do what thy manhood bids thee do, from none but self expect applause. Which basically means, follow your willy. <laughs> do what makes you happy. Excellent. He is the definition of a cad. He entered Oxford University in 1840, and within his first few weeks at university, he challenged another student to a duel for criticising his moustache. Now... <laughs> Someone criticised Richard's moustache. And he challenged them to a duel. Now, I have to say, there are a few photos of him, and he is an incredibly attractive man. He's beautiful, and he has a superb moustache. So I'm putting it out there. I'm not saying that challenging someone to a duel to the death is justified, but he could rightly be proud of his moustache. He's a very handsome man. Richard, your moustache looks like a bloody... Walrus has been on acid. What is that on your lip, oh boy? You've got a slug on your lip. Go call the botanist. It looks like you have an exotic caterpillar on your top lip. <laughs> so in his first term at university, he challenged another student to a duel over his moustache. He spent his time learning falconry, fencing, Arabic and other languages. But unfortunately, he was expelled in 1842 for attending a steeplechase horse race, which he did in protest at the university banning students from attending steeplechase horse races. So he got expelled from university for basically being a bit of a dick. Why were they not allowed to go and see steeplechases? I don't know. I think there's some races which are considered to be a little lowbrow. You know, it's the difference between boxing and bare-knuckle boxing, I assume. I don't know. Good question. He could have disguised himself behind his beautiful moustache and gone anyway and nobody would have noticed. Indeed. Well, do you know, he was a master of disguise, Tom, Ooh. as we'll learn. This guy has everything. He was truly the James Bond of his time. So after dropping out of university, inverted commas, being expelled, he joined the army of the British East India Company and gained a ferocious reputation for brawling, duelling, close quarters combat, and basically being someone that you do not mess with. He was nicknamed Ruffian Dick by the other officers, which is a wonderfully Victorian nickname. But he wasn't just about fighting. He was absolutely obsessed with foreign cultures and loved to learn about the places he visited. And so obviously being in India with the East India Company... Before he beat the shit out of some of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The ones he wasn't shooting, he was learning from, Tom. I like your Hindi culture. Now I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a compliment I learned from I... Dick Richardson. Yes. Afghanistani gentlemen, I, I do love your culture. I'm now going to kick you in the balls. Because my moustache <laughs> is better than yours. Well, he joined the army in the hope of fighting in the first Afghan war, but unfortunately missed it. So he did go out there to go and teach Johnny Foreigner a, a damn good lesson and give him a thrashing on behalf of the Empire. We've all met this person, haven't we, Sam? This person who joins the military just because they like to fight. Every Friday, Saturday evening, they just cannot wait to try and start a fight with someone in a bar. That's what he's starting to sound like. This was him, but he was strange in the fact that he was very, very intellectual. He loved art and poetry and culture, incredibly linguistically talented. And he completely dived into Indian culture, learning all about the different religions, studying with various wise men and tutors. 
learning every language he could, which in India is an awful lot of languages. He was slightly mad as well. He kept a menagerie of tame monkeys in the hope of learning to speak their language. Hold on. Is that the collective noun for group for, for monkeys, a menagerie? No, a menagerie is in a small personal zoo. <laughs> what is the collective noun for monkeys? That's one for Dr. Google. A, t- a tea party of monkeys. Collective noun for monkeys. Oh, it's a troop. A troop of monkeys. Excellent. Do you know what? According to Google, there are several collective nouns for monkeys, Tom. You can have a troop, which is the one that we've heard of and I should have remembered. You can also have a barrel of monkeys. Oh, can you? You can have a carload or a cartload of monkeys. Of course you can. Or you can have a tribe. So I'm going to start saying barrel. He kept a barrel of monkeys. Oh, but he probably had a cartload because he was travelling around with them. He probably did. Isn't there a phrase, mad mad as a barrel of monkeys? Uh, That's mad as a box of frogs. (laughs) I suspect you can extend that to have any kind of animal you like in any sort of storage device. (laughs) Yeah. So long, as long as it has rhyming first letters. Mad as a mug of slugs. <laughs> Quirky as a quince full of queens. Um, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that works. It could be like a giant quince. Like James and the Giant Peach. Like an enormous hollowed yeah, out full quince. Of queens. I, that, hello, darling. That oh, would be mad. <laughs> But anyway, he was viewed with a lot of suspicion and derogatorily by the other British officers. Was that anything to do with the monkeys that he kept carrying around with him? Well, they accused him of, inverted commas, going native. Oh, yes. okay. To which he did not give one flying fuck. (laughs) He was quite happy being him. And one thing he became particularly fascinated with was Muslim culture. And in 1851, he got temporary permission to leave the army and go to Mecca on behalf of the Royal Geographical Society. Now, non-Muslims are still to this day not allowed in Mecca, but at the time, it was punishable by death, being found to be non-Muslim in Mecca. Bit racist. It it is a bit racist. Well, on the flip side, Burton was a bit racist. So, (laughs) (laughs) equals. So, Burton disguised himself as a Muslim. This is how keen he was on Muslim culture, Tom. He even got himself circumcised so as not to attract suspicion whilst urinating on the Hajj. Wow. That is dedication. Could he just not peel back his foreskin? Good question. Ask him, Sam. I'd like (laughs) you to ask him for me. We'll put that out to the audience. (laughs) Bear in mind, this was the 1850s, so there's no anaesthetic and there's no antiseptic. I didn't realise that Muslims were circumcised. I I don't know. Let's put that out to the Muslim listeners, if any of them have survived this far. (laughs) So as well as getting circumcised, he took several disguises with him so that he could pretend to be from one particular Muslim culture, area, group, as you like. And if he came across someone from that group, he could don another disguise. Ah, yes, because that's awkward, isn't it? That is awkward when when you're pretending to be someone else and then someone comes up and starts asking you about your local village. Yes, well, he pretended to be... I think he pretended to be Farsi. So, obviously, if someone... He pretended to be Farsi. (laughs) Tom. Come on, now. (laughs) We all know. (laughs) Sorry. By Allah, Mr Burton, you're punching Humphrey hard tonight. Too many dates? <laughs> so he took several disguises with him and travelled under several pseudonyms, uh, one of which was Mirza Abdullah the Bushi. Well, that was just one of them, there were several others. Uh, and he succeeded, he made it. There was a rumour that went around, which he liked to circulate because he was a bit of a storyteller, that he urinated the wrong way one night and urinated in a way that did not carry with his costume and his persona. 
and was spotted by a local boy who he had to kill. What the fuck was he doing? A handstand? How could you urinate in the wrong way? Well, apparently he pulled up his robe when he should have squatted. Oh, right, okay. So, there you go. <laughs> Glad you asked now, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. That was actually a sensible answer. That's right. I've got sources, bitch. <laughs> Come <laughs> at me, bro. Research. Yeah. <laughs> this wasn't the only time he disguised himself as a Muslim to explore cultures where Christians weren't allowed. In 1854, he travelled to Ethiopia disguised as an Arabic merchant in order to explore Somalia and beyond and enter more towns where Europeans had been banned, before joining up with a guy called Lieutenant John Speak, who would become his longtime travel buddy and eventual Ooh. enemy and rival, and a guy called Lieutenant Martin Stroyan, in order to explore the Somali heartlands. Now, this expedition, as Victorian expeditions tend to do, Tom, went very badly. <laughs> the three of them, accompanied, as they usually were, by a truckload of unpaid and unnamed natives, was attacked by a group of Somali tribesmen. Stroyan was killed, Speak was seriously wounded and captured, though he later escaped, and Burton escaped, though he was wounded by a thrown spear which passed straight through one cheek and out the other side and broke his jaw. Oh, I was about to say, that must have been difficult to sit down, but I was thinking of the wrong part. <laughs> Face cheek. Face cheek. Oh, face cheek, sorry. He ran away and escaped, but he ran away with a spear literally passing through his head. He's full of shit, this guy. I don't believe it. Well, no, that one's true, because in all the photographs of him, he has a massive scar across his jawbone and his cheek. Christ. So that one's true. That happened. That's lucky, isn't it? It went straight through, cheek to cheek, and did you say it broke his jaw? I think it broke his jaw and knocked out a couple of teeth, yeah. Poor. So a, a very a very lucky escape. Yeah, Christ, that would hurt. Yeah. A, a couple of years passed, and in 1856, he left on another expedition, again with Speak. The two have become quite close friends now. This time to explore the Great African Lakes and Zanzibar with a secret aim of finding the source of the Nile. And again, Tom, we're talking about Victorian expeditions here. How do you think this one ended? Badly. Yes, Tom. It ended <laughs> badly. <laughs> I've been listening... I'm an attentive listener. So within a couple of months, they'd had all of their equipment stolen. And by the time they got to Lake Tanganyika in February 1858, Burton had to describe the scene to speak because he'd gone temporarily blind due to tropical disease. And he was also deaf in one ear due to a burrowing beetle that had got lodged in there and they couldn't get out. <laughs> oh, God. Use the spear. Get one of those. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. <laughs> get one of those Somali guys just to throw a spear at him and it will dislodge it. Give him a Burton toothpick. Yeah. Burton himself then got very ill and had to leave Speak to it and travel home very slowly and in feeling very sorry for himself by all counts. After which Speak, who by now recovered his sight, discovered Lake Victoria and claimed it as the source of the Nile. The two fell out over this big time because they had a tacit agreement that they would share their findings and was talk about them together. But by the time Burton got home, he discovered Speak had beaten him to it and was already giving talks at all the big societies and claiming all of the credit and claiming that he had single-handedly discovered the source of the Nile in Lake oh. Victoria and that Burton had had nothing to do with it. He who lives by the sword, Sam. Dies with a spear through his face. <laughs> the two fell out obviously big time over this. They spent the next few years trying to discredit each other, but because Speak had gotten there first, he basically got most of the credit for it and it was more or less the end of Burton's official kind of sponsored exploring days. So being as he was, a brawler who hated absolutely everyone he came across, he decided to go into the diplomatic corps, uh, working all over the world, including as an ambassador to Syria and generally making no friends and a lot of enemies along the way. And he also wrote 
an awful lot of books, Tom. Quite often, dirty, filthy books. (laughs) (laughs) He became an old twisted pervert. This is what we're saying. Well, he didn't become one. He was always one. He (laughs) He was always a dirty, dirty boy. As I've kind of alluded to earlier, Richard Francis Burton Tom loved sex. He was fascinated by how it was dealt with in different cultures, and let's just say he liked to experience those customs firsthand, Tom. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm getting the impression. Yep, I know what type of guy this is. (laughs) He had a hobby of drawing doodles of men's dangles. (laughs) Drawing doodles of men's dangles? Yes. You are quite the linguist. (laughs) Why, thank you very much. He, <laughs> yeah, so he, he drew hundreds of incredibly anatomically detailed images of men's penises from different parts of the world and would measure them, which was very nice of the locals to let him do that. Yes, a bit of a weird request, isn't and it? And compared them like for like and, and, and whatnot. There's also rumours that he also once went undercover in an all-male Bombay brothel at the request of the East India Company, which sounds like a story that everyone's granddad has told. Uh, <laughs> he went undercover in an all-male Bombay brothel So uh, a, a, gay, a gay brothel, we're saying Yes, and he was fascinated by homosexuality But never openly admitted to having explored it himself In Bombay Other than <laughs> In Bombay and elsewhere Other than claiming And there's no evidence to back this up whatsoever That he was ordered by his senior officers To go undercover in this Bombay brothel <laughs> Yeah, I, d- I really didn't want to do it myself. I got forced to. No, I said. I said. I d- said no, Forsyth. I won't do it. I, and he I... said, "That's an order, Burton." And I said, "Well, if the Queen demands it, I will take it up the arse by four Bombayans." Well, I think it was the Brits who were going to the brothel rather than a brothel full of Brits who were being visited by the locals. I suspect the British Empire being what it was, it was probably a local boy. I don't know a huge amount about homosexuality, but I'm fairly sure some people like to give and some people like to receive. I'm sure if you went to a male brothel, some of the British soldiers would like to take as much as they give, Sam. (laughs) Well, Tom, I'm going to put it out there. The British East India Company doesn't have a fantastic reputation for generosity. It tends to be a take-all (laughs) organisation. As with most things British in India, the locals were fucked. So anyway, the story is that he liked to tell that he was forced to go undercover in a in an all-male Bombay brothel. The, the truth of this is up for debate. He was a, a massive storyteller. He was a terrible pornographer as well, Tom. He was a lover of obscene and lewd books. <laughs> a terrible pornographer. That sounds like a Harry Potter book. <laughs> Harry Potter and the terrible, terrible pornographer. <laughs> Have you ever heard the dirty remixes of Harry Potter? Someone, I think it's Cassette Boy, in years gone by on YouTube, cut up the audiobooks of Harry Potter so they say unmentionable and conscionable things. No, but I'm going to be searching them out, Sam. And in return for that gift that you've (laughs) given me, I would like to suggest you go and see Richie and Eddie from Bottom as WrestleMania characters from the computer game Fighting that someone has uploaded. (laughs) (laughs) Links to all of those in the description, podcast fans. (laughs) So, yeah, Burton was a dastardly pornographer, Tom. And in Victorian London, you'll be unsurprised to know that obscene works of literature were banned. They could not be sold. However, in the interests of intellectual pursuit, it was perfectly legal to pass them around in the confines of a society. 
And so he and a friend founded the Karma Shastra Society in 1882 as essentially the Dirty Book Club of London to get around these laws banning obscene books. But actually, this society did some really important work. You may be familiar with a book called The Karma Sutra, Tom. The Karma Sutra. Yes, I've heard of said book, Sam. He was the first to co-translate it. So he, as part of this society, translated The Karma Sutra into English. Oh, never. As well as Arabian Nights, or A Thousand and One Nights, as its, its official name, which is a very controversial book at the time of Arabic folk stories, and basically a lot of them revolve around sex. It is quite rude, is it, Arabian Nights? It's very rude, yeah. Oh, it's it's it a filthy that. book. Dirty Aladdin, rubbing his lamp. And several others as well. So he actually had a hugely important role in translating Arabic culture into English as part of this dirty book society that he ran. Fair enough. He had some mad theories, which I'm going to end on because they're quite funny. He had a theory of the so-called Sotadic Zone, which was lands or countries where pederasty, which is the sexual love between teenage boys and grown men, like what the Greeks and Romans did. Right. Not paedophilia as such. Just... Creepy-ophilia. Yeah, kind of it, it, the, what you would stereotypically think of as boys in public school. Yeah, 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 yeah. So basically the older boy teaching the younger boy the ways of the world in a in terms of sex. <laughs> this closet is a bit of a perversion, shall we, Sam? Do you think that's fair? Yes, it was what the Greeks and Romans liked to do. Yeah, pederasty, it's called. <laughs> anyway, so he was a big fan of the idea of pederasty and was convinced that certain parts of the world championed this as their preferred form of sexuality. So he had a theory that in parts of Asia and parts of Africa that this was completely normal and championed. But it wasn't just parts of Asia and Africa, Tom. He was convinced that the entirety of North and South America were obsessed with rogering small boys. Uh, th- quite a generalisation. Quite a generalisation. Take that the colonies, I think. <laughs> yeah, that, what a strange belief. It was, wasn't it? Uh, so he wasn't an entirely unmad man. Middle of the 19th century we're talking, aren't we? So the, the Americas yes. <laughs> have been populated for quite a while. Yes. So quite a lot is known about the Americas. Yes. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, mm, right, okay. Unfortunately, much of his work was lost on his death in 1890, when his incredibly devoted and loving but long-suffering and devoutly Catholic wife, Isabel, burned most of his research papers. And She claimed she was doing this to protect his reputation, but was very widely condemned for it. And quite lovely this, the pair are buried together in a tomb in Mortlake in South London. And the tomb is shaped like a Bedouin tent as a testament to all of his years exploring the Arabic world and his love of Arabic culture, which I think is quite lovely in a way. In testament to all those mornings he woke up with an erection. (laughs) (laughs) And a young Bombay boy. (laughs) Ah, lighting the fires in the tent. And that is the story of Richard Francis Burton. Playboy, linguist... Explorer and slightly madman. What a strange story. What a strange character. Pederasty. You're struggling to sum up your feelings for him, and I think that sums up my feelings for him as well. He's a very difficult man to describe and or comment on. You just look at him and you think, what? Yeah, that's, that is... What is this man for whom any hole is clearly a goal? And yeah. <laughs> who basically just shags his way around the world... Like some horny gap year student. A lovable character nonetheless. Yeah, who are we to judge? <laughs> well, actually not a lovable character, because everyone absolutely hated him. <laughs> so actually a bit of a dick as well. Yeah. yeah Which rounds up 
the podcast nicely. A podcast about dicks. There we go. Well, we should probably think of a topic for next week, shouldn't we, Tom? But what can we do? I want, I want to go classical. Um, I tell you what, how about this, right? Architecture. Architecture is a really good one. Or statues. People who have had statues made of them, because there are some mad characters from folklore and real life politics in Greece and Rome who ended up in art. Right, we'll do statues, we'll do architecture another week. How's that? Sweet. I love it. Well, thank you all to our audience so much for listening. I hope you have enjoyed this week's podcast. It's been a fairly dirty one. I have been accused of making slightly too many dick jokes in recent episodes, and I don't think this has helped our cause. (laughs) But I do hope you have enjoyed it. If you have, please do like and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. And follow us on social media. If you search for That Was Genius or That Was Genius Podcast, you should find us fairly easily. Anything you'd like to add, Tom? I was just drawing a picture of of something that looks a little bit like a fawn looking pensively upwards with his hands behind his back. That's what I was doing, Sam. He's got a lovely lovely sweater, a nice pair of trousers with his flies zipped up, and a a good pair of clogs. (laughs) Beautiful. The mind of Tom Berry, ladies and gentlemen. We'll put that up on our Instagram account. Does he have a name, Tom? Kelvin Cloggington is his name, who lives at number 72. You can do this. Come on. (laughs) I want want to say clog. I I, I can't say clog again. Kelvin Cloggington... From number 72, um, Nobly Knee Lane. Would you lane? No, Nobly Knee. He moved from the other place a few weeks ago. Right. On that note, (laughs) it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's bedtime for Tom. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you next week.